Well, good afternoon uh, to those of you in London and uh, good morning to those of you in America. We have, in fact, Michael Magulius dialing in today from Chicago. Uh, and welcome, Michael. Good to see you. And good to see the festive spirit of your twins. Happy birthday behind <laughs> you. Uh, that certainly brings a smile to my face. Anyway, uh, today's title is intriguing for, for many of us. And uh, the outcome, uh, outturn of registrants is slightly down. And I wonder if they just didn't read the text that was beneath this. This is about using e early research as a global leading indicator. Could you base your investment decisions going forward on genuine research papers and preprints? And that's really the topic today. And it's somewhat related to a session we had in September with Jason Voss, who was using effectively his lie detector software to look at text and help us. These are certainly the ways to go. How can you get alpha when everything out there is becoming more and more quantitative? And yet we know that alpha exists in some quantity. So we need to start looking at different techniques. And Michael is here to show us one of the great tools of all time. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zen. And it really is my privilege to be able to introduce so many of these fascinating sessions for FS Club, principally because our sponsors allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And with the pandemic on a global scale where we can afford to host Michael here, I think he was, a, he was due to fly in on, on first class, weren't you, Michael? I, I think that's what I had you booked for, but sorry about that. Um, now, uh, the session today is uh, fairly straightforward. Um, I'm here to get out of the way, so I need to make three quick announcements. Uh, the first is that, yes, the slides are available. In fact, probably are already up and available and will be posted in the chat room. Secondly, this is being recorded and the recording will go up in approximately two working days. Uh, so sometime over the weekend, so you can share with colleagues or friends if you find it particularly interesting or not. And most importantly, we do have a significant question and answer session and I would encourage you to participate. It's a small group, so you should get most of the questions answered today. However, all the questions with their emails will be sent to Michael. So if you have a point of detail or you want to say, how do I buy or something like that, just type it into the chat room and I will make sure that he gets uh, that uh, from, 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 from all of us. Uh, I must say as well, just, just before I hand over to Michael, uh, we Zien are big users of SSRM. Uh, we are a research house, and a lot of people say, well, you're a commercial research house, but we are. Uh, and we therefore register and publish all of our stuff on SSRN as well. And we are, in fact, happy clients. I don't think Michael would call us customers because we don't pay for it. It's a free service at that level. But we enjoy it immensely and think it does the world a world of good. So anyway, Michael, with no more ado, if I may, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for the, the invitation and thanks to Peter for helping to uh, facilitate all the logistics. So I'm very happy to speak with you and we're going to talk about, about research, a type of research uh, that has been much in the news over the past 20 months. It's called preprints. Uh, and I think it'd be useful to get a sense right away of how familiar everyone is uh, with this topic. So we have a, a poll question online now. And uh, yeah. Yep, we'll just launch that now, Peter. Uh, so how familiar are you with preprint research? Not at all, it rings a bell, I, I know it intimately. Uh, a very quick area, I think it's a good, good poll question as well, Michael, to help gauge the audience uh, knowledge here. Um, right, right. Ever with FS Club, they're very opinionated or quick, quick off the mark or fast readers. 
and the entire audience has voted, and we now have effectively a three-way split. <laughs> so oh, a great. little bit of okay. model, another bit of rings a bell, but a third of the audience are fairly familiar. Over to you. Okay, great. All right. So, well, well a very quick uh, definition then. Uh, so preprint is the term for an early version of a research paper uh, prior to the point of publication or even prior to it being submitted for publication. And the typical scenario is a, a research journal. Now this can be a draft of a paper that will then be revised uh, in subsequent revisions, or it can be the paper that's been submitted to a journal already and is undergoing peer review. Peer review is the, the process used in scientific and academic journals to assure quality control. And typically this means two or more experts uh, in the field at hand uh, take a look at the paper, they read it carefully, they make suggestions uh, about changes or things to be uh, added, and, and they ultimately give a verdict on whether it should be published or not. This is a very important process. It's also very time consuming. Preprints uh, don't have that same process, although they do undergo uh, various forms of sanity check review, um, but their value proposition is rapidity versus the length of time it takes for peer review. And in some disciplines, that can, that can be two to three years in the social sciences and humanities, for example. Usually in, in medicine, it's, it's about a year or a little bit less than a year now. So preprints, uh, if we can go to, yes, here we are. So, so preprints have actually been around for about 30 years, but they've only really achieved public prominence as a result of the pandemic. And, and this BBC uh, debate that happened uh, last year, you know, it probably would not have happened had it not been for the pandemic. And, and that, you know, COVID-19 basically created this urgent need for some any information, however provisional, about how to deal with this new virus. So I want us to step back for a bit and, and just historically orient ourselves in, in the world of knowledge production and transmission. Um, it's, it's, uh, it could be a fairly arcane topic. I've been in this industry for, for 30 years and um, you know, it's always changing. Uh, and I want to go back uh, to uh, ultimately the 17th century. So what we're, what's going to happen is we're going to uh, see exactly how the sausage of knowledge is made. Next slide. Thank you. Yes, it's not going to be as, as scary as this. Uh, <laughs> next uh, slide after that, please. So, um, the journal as we know it began at the height of the scientific revolution. Uh, the first journals came out in the 1660s. Uh, here's the first one in English. It's the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. Uh, at this point in time, everything was a preprint. Peer review hadn't existed. Journals hadn't been established yet. So the norms and practices governing research are things that developed afterwards. Uh, and really, you know, they're still developing even now. Um, in fact, the first instance of peer review took place 100 years later in the mid uh, 18th century 
in a Scottish medical journal. And it's significant that the field was, was medicine. And I'll, I'll be talking a bit about that uh, later. Uh, so the scientific revolution began in the 17th century, but the real change in the research enterprise becoming formalized within the university began at the beginning of the 19th century, specifically with the creation of the University of Berlin. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, this is the, the world's first modern research university, and it became the model for other universities throughout the world. Uh, in the United States, uh, the big research universities have, have uh, taken and uh, adopted and adapted that model in the U.S. context. But uh, what this means is that the university evolved from being a place primarily aimed at transmitting the legacy of past knowledge to a place where new knowledge was to be generated. And this entailed a number of, of ramifications. So first of all, if you're going to create new knowledge, that implies increasing specialization. And in fact, what, we, what we've seen over the past 200 years is the uh, explosion of new disciplines and sub-disciplines. It also created a, a new persona. In past times, the polymath was, was kind of held up as the, as the model of erudition. But with the creation of the research university, you get for the first time the word scientist, a new persona, the scientist who, who has a, a special set of, of norms, practices, and values. Um, and amongst these were uh, the need to generate research results in a timely ma manner that could be widely distributed and digested by peers in the discipline. Uh, and, and you know, beyond the, the national frontiers of wherever the scientist was, was operating. And of course, that in, in led to increasing use of the peer review method. So I mentioned uh, the timely communication of results. And this dimension of time is really where preprints and SSRN comes in. So speed and acceleration, yes, thank you. Uh, speed and acceleration, of course, have been the hallmarks of our world for over 100 years now. Uh, they've, they've changed every form of communication, transportation, and, and production. And scholarly communication is no exception. Uh, Preprints began uh, in the 1990s in the disciplines of uh, physics, mathematics, finance, economics, uh, and uh, law, sorry. Um, and, and then they've expanded to, to other disciplines. At the moment, uh, especially in the past 10 years, huge expansion. There are now 60, over 60 different preprint platforms. Um, and, and that is sort of likely to, to increase. So this uh, ability to disseminate research very quickly means that research has now become, in essence, a form of news. Uh, it's literally research intelligence. And this was really brought home to me a couple of years ago when I was talking to our largest paying customer, which is a hedge fund. And they said, we want to get a feed of every single paper on the site, There's about a million papers on the site. Um, and these are across all disciplines. They wanted every single one, and 
I was asking, well, why? They said, well, you know, um, peer-reviewed journals are great. They have great information, but we view them as lagging indicators because by the time they come out, they're basically old news, especially for, for market or investment purposes. Preprints, by contrast, are considered leading indicators, at least by this by this hedge fund, uh, because they the results have not been seen before. Um, they're unlikely to be you know widely seen rapidly, and uh, you know so there's there's time for this hedge fund to uh, to run all sorts of analyses to figure out the predictive value of a particular piece of research for their own investment purposes, and this is particularly uh, important in areas that are very fast moving and that could could never be accommodated by a, a, a year long or more uh, review cycle. Things like cryptocurrencies, artificial intelligence, and of course, anything related with, with COVID. Uh, so, so that presented a very interesting scenario that, that you know, hadn't really dawned on us before. Uh, what we were more familiar with was just the different kinds of value that, that various stakeholders uh, place in preprints. So for academic researchers and their home institutions, uh, this type of early research extends brand awareness and establishes uh, thought leadership in specific areas. Feedback can be generated to improve the final result uh, of, of uh, the, the research. And in the highly metricized uh, environment of today's academia, uh, it provides, uh, they can generate very important results in terms of determining impact, both among other researchers, but in society at large. Journalists have increasingly been using uh, preprints as story ideas. And corporations who use preprints to, to publicize their own research um, find that SSRN is, is a good way to, to get them uh, in front of academic thought leaders, as well as policymakers, NGOs, and, and other businesses. Uh, next slide, please. So just this emphasizes the, the dual nature to SSRN. It is both a, a repository of research, but it's also a community for readers to, to see what's coming out and to engage in dialogue with the people who are generating the research. Uh, next slide, please. So I don't know if everyone is familiar with Malcolm Gladwell. That's his picture. He's, he's the author of some important popular books, The Tipping Point, Blink, uh, Outliers. He's been one of the most successful translators of specialized social science research for a more general audience. Um, in the US, initially through the magazine, The New Yorker, and now through various podcasts that he hosts. And he regularly uses SSRN for story ideas. And he very kindly called us uh, the greatest website on the internet. We got his permission to use that phrase and we have created t-shirts. Um, so next, next slide, please. So uh, what we've done at SSRN that, that's a little bit different is that we have uh, looked at our remit as encompassing the entire spectrum of academic inquiry. So uh, we, act, we literally 
uh, provide a platform for early research across all disciplines humanities, social sciences, physical sciences, life sciences. So we have over 68 disciplines that we're covering. We call them networks. We place them into areas called networks. And we've, we've just launched uh, a couple in the past few weeks. Actually, I made this slide before the most recent one, which was dentistry, which just came out a few days ago. Uh, next slide, please. So I want to talk about uh, this, this notion of metrics being important now uh, in the digital age as a way of, of gauging the importance of, of research. So um, we're now able to track things that were never possible in a, a, in a print environment. And this way of, of tracking can help uh, deal with two of the most important challenges that we're all facing, uh, regardless of, of our, our roles in our careers. But just within society, we're, we're kind of suffering from huge, two huge problems, information overload and, and the plague of misinformation that now has a much broader reach uh, than ever before, largely as, as the result of uh, certain social media practices. So we have found at SSRN that there, there are uh, very useful ways to, uh, and appropriate ways to use social media. Um, increasingly, Twitter in the United States and much of Europe is becoming the main venue for academics and researchers to rapidly communicate with each other. Uh, in China, of course, the, the dominant platform is the very interesting WeChat platform. Um, so we have, uh, have noticed that our Twitter followers have increased dramatically, uh, very much correlated with the pandemic. But also we've, just, we've started uh, actively using Twitter in, in different ways. Uh, next slide, please. So we're, we're finding that we can take our clients' papers and when we tweet them, if, if they're in the right subject matter, if they kind of have you know, if they hit the zeitgeist in its sweet spot, uh, we can generate a lot of traffic and we can also uh, ensure that these papers are picked up by prominent blogs or most significantly in newspapers. So this paper uh, came to me, I had a discussion with an early career law professor. He was doing a paper on the extent to which discrimination might be said to occur in the uh, IRS, the, the Internal Revenue Service, so the, the taxation people in the US, uh, when it comes not to assessing taxes, but when it comes to uh, enforcing actions. Uh, so, you know, we, we tweeted that paper out literally the day it came out, and a few days later, it was then picked up in a major um, uh, tax professor's blog and in the Atlantic Monthly publication. Uh, next slide, please. And you probably can't see it, but th this is a snapshot of what the uh, the social media traction uh, tracking data looks like. It will give you instances of the the various types of things that that it is tracking. Um, so next slide, please. So in addition to that kind of social media um, metric, we also have a, a separate set of analytics software that, that is looking into the actual uh, readership 
uh, metrics. And we have a, a dashboard that, that can do this now. And it, it tracks the traditional metric of scholarly citations. So this is citations of papers, including preprints, in other peer-reviewed journals. That's a very standard metric. What's newer is the metrics covering downloading and page views. Uh, page views means the abstract view. So it's essentially an expanded headline summarizing the paper. Uh, so in the past, digital publishers can report on the, the, the total numbers, this many downloads, for example, um, which gives a sense of popularity and virality, but it doesn't tell you much more. The, the, the key change for us was to get our hands on software that can now tell you which institutions are doing the download. Downloading. This is this is new in the world of preprints. Uh, next slide, please. So here's an example of, of a dashboard that can tell you the names of the institutions, but also can slice and filter the data depending on um, country location, the type of industry, the period of time being looked at, and all all at you know the paper level here. So um, this gives you know, fascinating insight for, for academics, of course, who want to know where their, where their readership is, is taking place. And, you know, it could be meaningful for your sense of your own scholarly, scholarly impact to say, oh, look, I'm an economist. The top 10 economics departments in the world have been downloading the heck out of my papers. In the world of the corporate world, however, uh, you get a, a much more kind of material benefit um, by telling, by looking at the uh, institutions that are doing the downloading, you suddenly uh, have, have yourself a, a useful sales and prospecting list. And this is how our corporate customers have been approaching this data. Here is just a quick example of uh, a slice by country. So these were the top, um, uh, institutions in Germany downloading SSRN papers in the last couple of weeks of October. So kind of recent, some recent data there. Uh, next slide, please. Um, another benefit that, that kind of shows how as, as this type of early research is becoming more common, it's not seen so much in antithetical terms with peer review publishing, but in complementary terms. And this is really, I think, the significance. Uh, uh, early research can extend the life cycle of, of the journal at the early end of the time continuum. So it's generating readership during this, this kind of long limbo period when, when peer review is taking place. So some major brands that we work with have, have seen the benefits of making uh, available a preprint capability for their authors at the point of submitting their article. So Cell Press is one of the leading brands in the life sciences and we, so we have a relationship with their journals where, where their authors can have preprints immediately available. We do the same with the big uh, medical journal, the, the Lancet. Uh, next uh, slide, please. Okay, now I wanted to, to drill down into some, some details that I thought were, were really fascinating. So, so COVID, as I mentioned, is, has been this, a big driver. I set myself a, a little research project last year, which was to see what papers we had on the site prior 
to the pandemic that shed some interesting light on, on any aspect of the vaccine business. I used to be a journalist covering the pharmaceutical industry, so I had a particular interest in this topic. And, and what I found was quite strike, striking. Uh, virtually every major action item uh, for, for societies and, and governments uh, posed by the pandemic had been discussed very thoughtfully years before in other papers on SSRN relating to, to other viral conditions. So the interesting thing about this paper, which you know deals with a major a major problem for COVID vaccines, was the supply chain. This the date of this paper. I'm not sure if you can see it, but it was first posted in 2012, uh, and it's about how to optimize the flu vaccine supply chain in the U.S. If we go to the next slide we see the, the the social media metrics for that paper from, from eight years before the, the pandemic and 26 news organizations cited it in 2020. So, so clearly a journalist was, was, was doing some research for, for relevant information on SSRN. Uh, that was, so that was, that was particularly striking. Uh, next, uh, so here is an example of um, how we work with corporate customers. And, and you might be confused about our business model because I, I've said that a lot of things are free and, and, and Michael has said that things are free, but I've also said that we have paying customers. So what we have is a freemium business model. So at the level of the individual user, a reader or author, the services are available for free. Uh, but at the level of institutions, there's a wider set of services, and these are fee-based. So the main product we have is called the um, Research Paper Series, and it's effectively a journal, a custom branded journal that we create for any organization that generates its own research. In this case, actually our, our biggest uh, research paper series in a number of uh, respects is the one we do for Standard and Poor's. Uh, this has a readership of, of several thousand subscribers uh, and the subscription is, is free, of course, for them. Um, and over the past four years, it's generated over 16 million downloads. And the way this works is we're aggregating all the papers on SSRN that are citing research coming out of uh, SMP's product portfolio. Um, next slide, please. Here's just a quick sense of the, the, the number and nature of organizations that we work with. You know, there are some governments, obviously universities, uh, some foundations and, and other nonprofits number number of institutions in the UK. Um, here I wanted to cite uh, the, an interesting aspect when we think in terms of leading indicators or ways in which we can um, kind of uh, deal with the white noise of, of information overload. So one very effective way, apart from looking at major prestigious institutions, is to look at specific authors who um, who have 
you know, changed the terms in which a discipline is discussed. So sustainability goals are, are very important right now for a lot of corporations. A lot of places are creating new positions or even departments related to ESG. And the, one of the main authors in this area is George Serafim at Harvard University. He has, I think, over 100 papers on SSRN. He, he notes on his Harvo bi, Harvard bio page that he's a top 10 business author on SSRN, which is, which is very nice of him. But um, you know, ESG is a fairly new topic and uh, consensus is still building around exactly what the impact is. Uh, I have a friend whose job is, is, is head of ESG at a, one of the top five pharmaceutical companies in the world. He looks at papers written by George Serafine specifically because that's, that's a way for him to get a sense of, of how the field is likely to, uh, to evolve. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, another way is to look at specific papers. Uh, you know, papers that go viral, uh, are, are often an indication that, that, there's, that there's something really going on here. And especially if you can correlate usage with what's happening in the news uh, right, right at the moment. So you might be familiar with the, the short squeeze opera of, of GameStop in January of this year, the, the video game retailer had a very interesting experience with his stock uh, that was that was fostered by activity on a subreddit called Wall Street Bets, uh, which had a large community talking about stocks and their valuation, and and in this case they were trying to change uh, the the stock price and effectively. Uh, so that happened, you know, throughout the whole course of January. In March, we had this very thoughtful piece uh, by by economists looking at the, the consequences of, of Wall Street bets, and in, in particular, looking about at the predictive value of this subreddit uh, over the, the period 2018 through 2020. So this came out in March and it rapidly became one of the most highly downloaded papers of, of all time at, at over almost close to 9,000 downloads. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, medical papers, I wanna get back to this whole point about peer review and medical papers. They require separate review. So we've created a new editorial policy to deal with medical papers because medicine is the great outlier um, uh, in research because of its uh, capacity to, to impinge on human health. You're not going to go to the emergency room because you read a, a bad literary criticism paper, but a bad medical paper could, you know, have have fatal consequences. So to address the um, the time benefit ratio with preprints, we have instituted a, a separate series of processes a, a, and a, an editor who literally looks at every single medical paper. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and and this is important uh, because uh, I talked a lot about the upside of preprints, but there is a downside that is discussed in the um, in the news uh, media in particular, uh, which is that you know maybe we can't trust research if it hasn't been peer reviewed. 
Uh, and, and this is, you know, a sensible point, and we've tried to address it with these new editorial policies. The only time, the only types of papers are mentioned are that are mentioned in this context are medical papers, particularly COVID papers. And what's interesting, if you look at the COVID papers that have been withdrawn for quality reasons, uh, there's about 190 of them, and they're on the site called Retraction Watch, which is very interesting. If you look at that set of 190 papers, only 20% of those uh, retractions are from preprints. The other 80% are from peer-reviewed journals, which is a very interesting uh, sign. And it, it does show that there are some problems and, and have been for a while. Um, just literally last week, uh, a geology journal had to retract over 40 papers for, for basically being gibberish, not just bad science, but gibberish. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, in 2013, a science journalist did a sting operation where he created a bogus oncology paper, submitted it to 150 journals uh, or more, but about 150 said, yes, we'd be happy to, pu to publish this. So what this shows is uh, a couple things. I want to close now with, with just a couple uh, suggestions. And, and an analysis of how we, we reached this, this, this situation. Well, I, I would like to highlight maybe three, three factors. First, the incentive structure of academia is highly perverse <laughs> in a number of respects. And this, uh, this whole publish or perish mentality is, is directly related to the proliferation of, of research and information overload, but also to uh, attempts to try to, to game the system by malicious actors. Secondly, information overload results in a real crisis of epistemic authority. The more content that's out there, the more difficult it is to determine what's, what's trustworthy. Um, and then I, I think finally, uh, the, the internet environment we're, we're, we're working with, which is not well regulated or regulated at all, you might say, um, just has made it uh, possible to change behaviors and attitudes on a, on a vast global scale that, that has never existed uh, before. Uh, so next slide, please. So I wanted to suggest if you have time for weekend reading, this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating article by one of our main authors in law. He's also a, an expert on Nietzsche. He really gives wonderful background into how we ended up in this uh, position of epistemic crisis uh, over the past 40 years, particularly in the US as a result of changes to broadcasting law, uh, uh, but then seeing how that has affected the internet environment as well. And it's a very interesting case of the US versus the, the situation in, in the UK that you might be interested in. Uh, so, and then finally, I wanted to say the, the one way to address this is uh, for us to all to become better readers. Uh, that doesn't mean to read more, to, but to be, uh, to be very careful about what we choose to read and to always exercise critical vigilance um, whenever we are reading, no matter the provenance. So with that, I thank you for your time. I hope I haven't run too much over and I'm happy to, uh, to take questions.
Well, that's wonderful, Michael, and thank you very much for that. Um, we, we do have quite a few questions, and folks, uh, do pop them in quickly if you'd uh, like them to be addressed. Um, just a quick historical question, and perhaps very quickly, I don't want to kind of dive too much into the origins of the Royal Society and Gresham College and things that I do mm -hmm. know about. Uh, but Hugh Purser says, it was the growth of publications, preprint or peer, peer review, in the 17th and 18th centuries in any way connected to the development of intellectual property rights and patenting? Ah, well, um, I think... I think the way, not so, I mean, intellectual property rights were, were barely existent um, at that time. So, you know, a lot of copyright infringement was going on in a sense, but from our standpoint, purely because publishers uh, took it upon themselves to exert copyright. And, um, and they often generated most of the, the financial benefit as well. But what you do find uh, is that every technology, and I'm using technology in a broad sense here, to include the modern research university itself as a, as a new technology, uh, pretty much ever since Gutenberg, every technology has generated a, a problem with information overload, which has resulted in yet another new technology to try to address it, which has only compounded the problem in a different way. <laughs> so, uh, so basically the creation of books, you know, uh, book publishing, the proliferation of texts led to this worry about, you know, information overload's been around with us for hundreds of years. That led to a new form of publishing, uh, journals, but also reference works like encyclopedias to try to, to, to summarize all the books that you didn't have time to read. Mm. That led to another crisis of authority, which, which you know, ultimately led to the creation of the modern research university, um, and now we have you know the internet to try to deal with the fact that uh, so much information is behind what, what's called paywalls. But anyway, so I hope that's kind of a useful. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hugh, also here, uh, <clears throat> is there any evidence that preprint coverage by media and social media? has begun to influence the peer review process itself. You know, an example might be that uh, a much media presented piece of research has a better chance of earlier publication in a leading journal. That is a great question because um, Microsoft Academic uh, is a, a group within Microsoft that, that has focused on bibliometric research for, for a number of years. A few months ago, they came out with the, the best study I've seen of the preprint space in general over the past 30 years. And they've, they've shown a really interesting statistic, which is that papers that have a preprint version generate several times more citations in the peer-reviewed literature than papers that appear de novo in a peer-reviewed journal. So this indicates that that you know the the socializing of research early on is getting people um, you know getting it on people's radars very soon, and that means more citations uh, when later on when when the paper is published. I happen to know uh, a friend of mine, major publisher for um, a leading oncology society. Their editors would look at preprints uh, and and basically solicit papers for submission that they thought they could improve, but that, that were, were great papers. So there, there is, is a lot more interplay between, between the two, and that's part of this uh, 
complementary aspect that, that's happening. Mm, okay. Um, uh, Chris David has a point, which is related to another point he's raised. Um, just quickly, uh, you didn't seem to mention sciences and engineering much. Does SSR uncover those um, at all? Oh, yes, we do. We do cover okay. engineering. Yeah, physical sciences, applied sciences, life sciences. Um, oh, yeah. We have quite a lot of, in materials science, for example. And off the top of your head, what would you say are the top five uh, disciplines or networks today? Right. So, um, you know, it, it definitely reflects historical precedent. So we started SSRN, you know, as an acronym for Social Science Research Network. Uh, so, so definitely law, economics, finance, uh, sustainability now, which is fairly new, uh, and medicine are are the networks that we're really seeing uh, a, a lot of activity in. Okay. And uh, looking ahead, um, you, you, you mentioned sustainability already, but what, what yeah. would be um, two or three other ones that you're like, I can see this is going to be big? Right. Well, you know, we, we look at um, kind of also taking sub-disciplines as, as they become more prominent within the larger disciplines. So things like cryptocurrency, uh, uh, quantitative finance, we're getting a ton of research in that area. We, in fact, have launched a research hub, which is like a mini network um, on cryptocurrency just, just recently. Uh, we're talking uh, to a potential sponsor now about doing something much more targeted on global investment research, uh, where we're, we're looking much more closely at specific companies and, and stocks. Uh, I think, uh, I, I think, you know, another area that we, it's, it might be minor, but who knows how it bigs, how, how, how it increases is, uh, the big area of cannabis research and, and psychedelic, uh, you know, this is becoming not just a business now, but, but much more scientifically investigated. So, you know, these, these are some areas that I, that I think could, could become more prominent. Well, that's going to go quite slowly though, because it'll be more along the lines of, yeah, last night I had an idea. I can't quite remember <laughs> what it was. Yes, <laughs> anyway, um, Eric Brugian's dialing in from uh, Toronto. He's got a good question here. Uh, okay, you know, a lot of the stuff you're talking about, we can kind of get the commercial aspects of it, but just out of curiosity, how do philosophy or political science trade on SSRN? Right. So, um, so one of the things that that we do is uh, we take a broad definition of, of research. It isn't just a, an article, maybe like a scientific article that's the result of an experiment. It, we look at things like white papers, book chapters, slide decks, infographics. So it's a way of generating material that might not get wide distribution. You know, so a lot of chapters in a big expensive philosophy reference book might never be read by, by anyone outside of an academic library, but here they can have a life of their own uh, and they can generate research. Um, and then, so there's, you know, part of it is, oh, I just like to see my stuff being read I, and I want to know who's reading it. But these metrics that I mentioned earlier can, can give an indication of impact as well. The, in the UK, you might be familiar with the um, Research Excellence Framework. Mm -hmm. So this is an exercise. It just happened this year. I think every seven years, institutions and departments are assessed. And their rating uh, determines how much money they will be 
given by by the government and how highly they they rank in uh, the top of their field. Twenty five percent of that mark uh, that grading comes from this notion of societal impact, which is not really uh, rigorously defined anywhere. So it's kind of up to you to make the case that you're demonstrating societal impact. Well, some of these metrics on SSRN are a great way of, of doing that. Uh, so, so you can see that, uh, you know, especially disciplines in the social sciences and humanities, which, you know, are always in this perennial crisis of of relevance, you know, they can maybe use these types of, of metrics to help uh, demonstrate that they're still relevant and important. Right. Well, sadly, uh, I can see uh, comments coming in, which is always a sign that we've come to the end of time, but they are positive and thank you. Um, there's a really interesting comment to close on from Hugh Purser. Is fake news a defined category on SSRN? So we will need to do that as well. Um, okay. I, I might add, uh, personally, that I, I do find this a fascinating area. As, as you point out, and as the first question started you down, this whole issue of uh, people producing information and thoughts leads you, of course, to who's editing that, and who's approving it, and who's filtering it for you. And it's a, it's a constant battle in life. And every time we see information overload, we get editors to kind of boil it down, but then the overload begins again. Uh, I think this is going to go on and on. And in some ways, you've poked a bit of a hole there in the value that's added through peer review uh, by, by looking at the preprints. That doesn't mean peer review is valueless. It just says, oh, let's, no. let's look at this with a very critical eye. Um, and, you know, when do we form a cartel and when are we, frankly, adding no value at all is, a, is an interesting issue. So all of you out there, and I can see a few very senior editors out there in the audience. I won't name them, uh, but from big publications, I know who you are and you know who you are. Uh, you will recognize this problem innately. Um, I might also add, uh, again, on a personal experiential note, uh, me and the team, uh, Peter, who's out, up out there in the background, have been using SSRN for some time. And those of you in business uh, who, who do produce research, I can again see a few of you online, uh, please, by all means, go and start listing some of your stuff. As Michael emphasized at the end there, it's not always just a you know, huge fully blown research report. It can be a, an interesting thought piece with some evidence. It could be an infographic, what have you. Michael, uh, very sadly, uh, we're gonna turn, if I may, to uh, three quick rounds of thanks. Firstly, to our sponsors. Uh, I hope you find this, this is a, it seems a little out there, but of course the core of everything we do in technology, economics, and finance starts to turn up in those preprints. Uh, secondly, the audience, you've been great today as ever. Uh, it's nice to have such an engaged audience. Uh, I will point out that there are some events coming forward, uh, and as ever, just go and look at the website. Uh, but we have an interesting session next week on the Turks and Caicos, a fascinating one on uh, how bad cyber uh, warfare is getting uh, and other things. But just go to the web website and have a good old look at, at what's there. And Michael, I'm afraid uh, the technology transatlantic allows you to present, but it doesn't allow us to applaud. So I have here my Korean karmic clapper. Uh, which is going to function as an analog uh, clapping device. Uh, but we'd like to thank you so much for this. Thank you. What you're doing is uh, really noteworthy, and we appreciate you taking the time to explain it to us. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.